This is Faux Real, a podcast where I chat with indie filmmakers about their filmmaking processes, their inspirations, and what their stories mean to them. And I'm your host, Dawn Borchardt. On this week's episode, I got to talk with Brooke Sweeney, the director of the documentary Daughter of a Lost Bird. We got the chance to connect about our own Native identities and talk about making a film from a place of empathy and emotional attachment and the importance of representation in media. Well, hello, everybody. Um, my name is Brooke Pepian Swainy. I put the Pepian in there, uh, even though I don't always go by Pepian, but that's my dad's last name, and he's Blackfeet. And I'm a Swainy on my mom's side, and she's Salish from the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. I'm the director and producer of the film Daughter of a Lost Bird, Uh, The film is an intimate portrait of one woman's journey to reconnect with her birth mother and her tribal heritage, which turns out to be Lummi. Just to get us started, how did you get involved in this story? Originally, it was just an idea of a way to help a friend connect with her Indigenous identity, and that friend being Kendra, who's the protagonist in the film. And over time, um, as we grew closer in our friendship. And I originally cast her in a short film that I made um, for my NYU graduate thesis film. Um, And she kept getting cast in these native roles and was feeling kind of uncomfortable with that and not having any connection to her indigenous identity. And I was like, well, let's find out, you know, as your friend, like, you know, I'll support you and like, however you want to find out. And then somewhere she says, it's me. I say it's her, it's probably somewhere in between, but we decided to make a film about it. And when I started kind of looking into films about transracial um, adoption, uh, specifically with Indian country, there wasn't anything. You know, there's a lot of films that are out there about, you know, adoption and reconnecting with birth families. Like you could turn the TV on and there might be a story on right now with some, you know, docu-series or I think there even was like an entire series, but there weren't any like told from the perspective of an indigenous person that I was aware of at the time. And then since the film has finished now, the there's two other great films that are out now called Dawnland is one that's set in Maine um, about a truth and reconciliation commission that, you know, people did up there. And it's a little bit more of a historical view of an overarching view of the issue and then similarly there's another film called blood memory which is also on america reframed that you can watch right now um, that features sandy whitehawk and her work to help adoptees return to their communities i love that you bring up these other films too (laughs) i've seen blood memory um and i'm aware of dawnland it has my name in it um (laughs) But I appreciate you bringing in those other filmmakers and like looking at that from a broader community standpoint. Um, Well, you know, we don't live in a vacuum. I mean, we're all in this world together. And where do you personally come into this? Like, what does this story mean to you? Yeah, well, I'm not adopted. So personally, you know, a lot of people are always ask me that. And so I say at the outset, I am not adopted. But I feel like I can identify with adoptee stories because, you know, I didn't meet the my dad's side of the family until I was 18, 19 years old. And so I can kind of understand, you know, what it's like to try to 
you know, meet this family, like as a young and somewhat fully developed person. I mean, your brain is still growing up until you're 27 or whatever. So, you know, you're, you're still forming yourself as a, as a person. So I, I always think it's interesting, um, you know, how do people connect and forge relationships with family that they don't really know? Um, and I feel really fortunate that, you know, my family on my dad's side are all really welcoming and loving towards me. Could you talk about your Native background and what that community means to you and kind of how that further helped informed your interest in Kendra learning about her background and community? So I spent some of my formative years on my mom's reservation here um, in Montana. She's from, like I mentioned, uh, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. And I still live here on the Flathead Indian Reservation in Montana, which is like situated between two of our bigger towns. I mean, there's not really cities here. They're towns. Living here and growing up here was always a strange situation because, you know, you're immediately racialized as a small child you know, Native people are the minority on this reservation. We only make up like 20% of the total people. Um, and that's because of a lot of uh, reasons, <laughs> but, you know, mainly because the uh, of like where the reservation is and the type of land that's around here. So I spent part of my childhood here, for, like forming my indigenous identity in a way of knowing that I was always Indian, you know, and like my family and all of that stuff over here. Uh, and they would always tease me because I'm not enrolled here. I'm, I'm enrolled over at Blackfeet where my dad's tribe is. And traditionally they're warring tribes. So I would get teased, you know, in a loving way about it. Um, now there's a very loud, loud airplane going over. So I will just let the airplane fly. You know, it's funny, like uh, since COVID happened, there's a lot of like small airplanes that fly in a lot more frequently. And I think it's like all the rich people who have their houses in Montana who have a plane that they can just oh like gosh. fly here. Cause there's a small, there's just a small airport, like, you know, across the river, like just like down the way. That's <laughs> not crazy. That far. It's like mm -hmm. similar to like the freaking Kardashians always going to Wyoming yes. now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of like, I've, I've definitely seen some like jets and stuff come through. Oh it's pretty gosh. weird. Wow. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So back to me, but like my mom got a state job and we moved to the Capitol when I was probably about 11, 10, 11 years old. And um, that's where I like to joke and say that I lost my res accent there because I was one of the only Native people um, in uh, elementary, middle and high school growing up there. So I have like I have kind of this insider outsider feeling about, you know, on the res being off the res, like being raised away from the reservation, oftentimes being the only indigenous person in the room, um, or at least like one of two or something like that, and being made to feel, you know, awkward about being indigenous. Um, so that's kind of where my identity uh, was formed, I guess, around um, myself. And then um, I went to undergraduate at Stanford University, and that was a place where you know, they had a really strong native community and I, and I loved that about that school. Uh, Is this a major chops? 
<laughs> I mean, I don't, for some reason I go to fancy schools and then I went to another fancy school, NYU, where I got my MFA and um, that's where I met Kendra. I have this perspective and knowledge about like history and stuff that she just doesn't have. And so at some point, you know, I was really trying to tell like a pure form of this documentary where it was really just her perspective, but then like pretty quickly, I realized that we have to put some context in there, especially because about halfway through making the film, you know, her birth mother was telling us her experiences of her own, own um, reunion with her birth family. And, um, and it became really apparent to me that they didn't even know the history about ICWA or the Indian Adoption Project. And I just thought, well, if they don't even know, then of course, like, Joe Schmo American doesn't know about this stuff. Like, I know about this stuff, but that, you know, other people don't know. I feel like I was only vaguely aware. And then when I saw the blood memory doc that you're referring to, um, is when I learned even more and was just like very aware of the situation. But I appreciated your film from such like a personal standpoint. And I, f- I felt like when I was watching Blood Memory, I felt like I learned a lot. But um, with Daughter of a Lost Bird, I felt like I could relate a lot. So my personal story has nothing to do with adoption, just like yours. But I am a first generation descendant of the Menominee tribe, which is in Wisconsin. And, you know, I'm mixed race. Um, I'm native, I'm Mexican, Swedish, German, but I really look Swedish and German. And so my sort of identity crisis, if you want to call it that, (laughs) is that the, um, I grew up relating to my native family the most and spending the most time like on the reservation and with that culture and not with being German or Swedish, even though that's how I physically look. And so that's always been like a really weird situation for me and in my family. Um, And we have a ton of people in our family and it's kind of across the board, like all mixed everyone. Some people look native, some people don't really. Um, And so it's always just been kind of this odd place for me to be in where I kind of feel like I have to like tell people I'm native or like prove that I am because you can't look at me and like see it right away. Um, and it's not that Kendra's dealing with that problem exactly, but I really could relate to her trying to figure out like, what is my culture? Who are my people? And like, how do I talk about this? Um, and there was something that she said in there that, uh, was there's this desire to be recognized as native, but what is native anymore? And that was just something that, struck with me too. You know, just like I'm saying, like, I feel native, but my, it's like my physical identity doesn't match like what's inside me. And so it's a strange kind of place to be in. (laughs) I am curious, you've been talking about your background a lot, but what was it like emotionally for you going through this process with Kendra? And what were things that you could really emotionally relate to or empathize with that she was going through? pausing for this barky dog he's very upset I can tell because he's not with the rest of his humans I mean there's there's a theme for the whole movie you know you're not with the rest of your humans so it's hard to (laughs) it's hard to be but yeah the approach of the film has always been a, a character like emotionally driven film you know to 
to really have people understand, you know, how it impacts your heart. Um, and Kendra would talk about like, she never felt a loss or a lack. And I did not understand that for the longest time. I just thought like, how do you not feel a loss or a lack? Like, I feel a loss that I don't get to like hang out with people and I don't get to like learn my language and I don't get to do all this stuff because I'm far away or, you know, I want to know more about our, our traditions and our stories and all of that stuff. And she just like, she just, you just don't know what you're missing until you know what you're missing. You know, for me, I think emotionally, like being um, kind of her partner in this journey, like where I'm like going with her being this partner. I mean, yeah, it was to like uphold, like kind of uphold her, but it, it did remind me of some things where it's like, well, you know, I feel sad that I didn't get to know some of my other family as a younger person. And I feel sad that I don't know, you know, as much about Blackfeet culture or Salish culture. But, you know, part of that is, you know, things that are not just like in my parents' control, but also, you know, the the assaults and waves of assimilation that have happened to indigenous people for generations. So it, it, I mean, it's heavy stuff. It's hard stuff. And it, it, and, and I used to cry sometimes when I would watch the film, but now like, it's like, I'm all cried out. Like I have no, <laughs> you know, people cry. I watch them cry. I'm like, yes, yes, this is sad, but I just don't have the, I'm just not there anymore. Cause like I've, I've cried all the tears or, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, I think, I feel like it's such a more complex issue than the general population realizes, mm-hmm. um, as far as like complications with identity, uh, like what you're saying, people not knowing even about, uh, all the adoptions out or the boarding schools, or how the impact of assimilation and what that does to even just someone like me who has like a lower blood count and like, you know, things like, like how, how that happened to my family where we're, you know, mixed in with other races and all that stuff. There's just there's like multiple (laughs) levels of, I guess, like annihilation, um, that now we have to deal with and sort through and figure out like, who are we and who's our family? And like, what does this all mean? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, these are, these are all really big questions. And, you know, uh, I think right now is an interesting time in indigenous history, um, across the United States, because, you know, at some point, like the blood quantum thing, which was created by design to get rid of tribes, is definitely going to be a huge issue for people. Um, there's certainly people in my family who are white passing. I mean, I'm often white passing. People don't understand that I am indigenous and I often have to assert my identity. And then they see me and they're like, oh, yeah, I can see it. Mm-hmm. What are you like a third or something? I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, just pedigree me like a dog, you know, cool. (laughs) That's cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and, and it's also interesting for Kendra because, you know, I think she is a witness and a part of the erasure, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's a lot of really beautiful moments throughout this film 
of her learning and connecting and especially like meeting her mom as you were filming this what were some of the most impactful and meaningful moments to you well oh my god like when they first met obviously and you know if you watch the film which I hope that you do you know there were some amazing moments that you know were kind of happy accidents in the footage that you know people were like oh, did you add that heartbeat in and post? And I was like, no, that was just all their lavalier microphones, like picking up both of their heart heartbeats, you know, didn't add that. And it was amazing. And so we kept it in. And then there was also like something like very weird happening towards the end of the filming. And we were there for about four or five hours. And, you know, the light started to go in this park where, where we were in Portland and all these owls started hooting, which was super weird like super weird um because you know it, we're in the middle of downtown portland and i'm just like where are all these owls coming from i mean there's a bunch of woods around so that's probably where they're coming from and we're surrounded by trees but um it was very strange i also had a friend die at this, around that time which was also really weird to find out not to get into like woo wooiness you know about owls and stuff but yeah yeah, I've definitely had moments like that. Like when we were burying our grandpa, for example, there was like two eagles that were like circling overhead. And just, I don't know, those moments kind of like, you, know, you feel connected and you're like, <laughs> are there greater things than just this like moment in front of me happening? Um, I don't know. <laughs> They're beautiful though. Um, yeah. This film is about, um, you know, Kendra connecting to her family and her culture. And has this made you grow closer to your own family? And are there some specific things that maybe you have tried to do? Like you were talking about not knowing language and ceremonies and things like that. Are there any specific things that you've kind of sought out or been inspired to seek out? Well, kind of through the course of the film, you know, I had moved back to Montana. Um, so I had more opportunities to do, you know, more cultural things with my, um, with my family on both sides. Um, and so I tried to do those things when, you know, I was invited to a lot of ceremonies, you know, you don't necessarily get to go to unless you're invited. So you can't just like show up, you know, you kind of have to like get the invite from the person who is inviting you, you know, like it doesn't necessarily have to be a direct invite to the party or whatever, but you still have to, you know, have that. So that was really nice to be able to share some of that with my family and my family on my mom's side, we've all been like, you know, my immediate family are really close. Um, and so that's been really nice to just be around my family. Yeah, I shot my um, senior thesis film in film school about, it was also a documentary about my family, like on the reservation. And it was just nice, like shooting that film. So I shot it for about a year, just like getting the opportunity to like learn more and connect with people more. It was just like the process itself of making it was nicer than like the actual film. <laughs> What do you hope people see in your film who are native and non-native? For a native community, it's really about encouraging people to let members of this transracial adoption or even foster care community come back into the community and um, 
And that can be really complicated, you know, especially because, I mean, we're so family-based. I think a lot of tribes are really family-based. And, and if you come from a family that's like, you know, barely functioning, <laughs> I mean, then that is hard. That is hard to find like, you know, somebody who's going to like share their knowledge with you. But there's always people in communities, at least like, you know, in my communities that are willing to share their knowledge with people. And I think, you know, just trying to uh, help people find those people, I hope will come from this film. Another thing, you know, the Lummi Nation has this really cool thing that they do with their grandparents committee. It basically was formed to kind of stop some of these foster care and adoptions um, of their kids out of their community, but not just stop it but if it did happen to like provide that, you know, kind of arm, extended arm out to these kids to say, you know, we are here, we're thinking about you, you know, we want you to know that people are thinking about you and we'll welcome you back if that's what you want. You know, a lot of people like are perfectly happy being assimilated, you know, living that American dream. And then for non-native people, I just like want people to like understand, you know, we were watching like some episodes of Dr. Phil um, and we're thinking about, you know, putting some of this episode about Dr. Phil about the baby Veronica case. And it's just like, they don't get it. Like these people don't get it, that it doesn't matter the blood quantum of the child. This child is considered an Indian child and that native kid then has rights. Like they have rights to their culture they have rights to their language. Sometimes they have monetary rights or land rights. Like those are important. And you don't want to just like be like, well, they're not really native because there's they're only like 132nd blood. I mean, that's not for another culture to decide who belongs to that culture. It's really up to like the tribe, the nation, whoever to decide their members. So I'm really hoping that, you know, some non-native people will understand the importance of keeping these kids connected. And I, I also think it really comes at odds with American culture in general, which is very compartmentalized and, you know, very proprietary. It's like, you know, my kid is my kid. Like I own this kid. And I feel like with native communities, it's like my kid is like also part of this like larger family and fabric of this community, which is not the same. It's just not the same. And so trying to like, you know, bring like this, the, the square peg and the round hole together can be really hard, but hopefully it could be mish, mishmashed a little bit more. Well, I saw your film at AFI Doc Fest, which was really nice to see there. It's, you know, it's not a native film festival. And I feel like most of the patrons are probably not native. So it was really nice to see this story in that context for me. Um, and then like this film and there's been, you know, a, a handful of other native films I've been seeing out there and kind of the general public lately, which has been really nice. And then of course, in the last couple of weeks, we've had Reservation Dogs on Hulu, which has been awesome. How do you think this kind of representation will change the connection of Native identity and feelings of Native identity in our people moving forward? Well, I mean, it's huge, you know, first of all, just to have these shows like Rutherford Falls and Reservation Dogs and, you know, big 
props to all of the filmmakers and a lot of them I know, you know, because the native filmmaking community is so small. So it's really amazing to see, you know, these get greenlit by big outlets to America. You know, Americans need to know that we're around, you know, there's just as many native people as there are Jewish people in the United States, I think, if you check the census. And I feel like I know a lot about Jewish culture because like I'm a huge fan of Larry David and, you know, Broad City and all these other shows, you know, and I, and it's like, why can't we also have that for native people too? I absolutely agree. So I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it does seem very relevant to what we're talking about. I've been thinking a lot recently about the issue of non-Native storytellers going into Native communities and making films, especially documentaries. And I'm just curious to get your feelings on that. That is such a complicated question, Dawn. Um, because I love that you say that <laughs> it is it's a very yeah it's a lot I mean I don't know you know there's people make films about other people all the time painters would paint pictures of other people like in history you know you're you're not going to be able to stop it really like and part of me thinks like nor should you but also like I think it's just a moment for the people who are funding stuff to, to take a pause and examine if they have two projects and one is held by a non-native person who's going into a community where they know nobody versus one helmed by an indigenous person who's like entrenched in their, in their community. Like, I just want them to pick the project where there's the native person, you know, because so much media has been made about us without us. So I just want that to change, you know, um, I, and I also people, a lot of people reach out to me about their projects and, um, you know, about me producing their project or something. And, and, um, and I'm pretty selective about what I do. And the more old that I get, <laughs> the more that I am just less and less interested in, um, in making a film unless I really feel like the the filmmaker has done their homework beyond like you know a week of filming here and there like that they're that they know a little bit more um, and know how to go about doing things and that's not to say that these filmmakers can't make an interesting film because I'm sure that they can but you know I just it just really is fatiguing to me to see outsiders like constantly like you know, using Native people to launch their careers. And then I wonder, well, are these people actually like giving back to the communities that gave them so much? I'm just sitting back and kind of watching to see what they're doing. Yeah, it's a very complex situation for sure. And I talked to a lot of filmmakers like through this podcast, through working at film festivals and, um, through written interviews I do for a magazine and I, you know, often am gravitating towards native films and stories. And it's, it, it makes me feel weird. And I'm still like trying to, I like try to figure out like the balance of like being happy that we're represented on screen. And it's a really good story that I want people to hear, but then I keep talking to 
these white filmmakers almost more than I get to talk to other native filmmakers. And it's odd. <laughs> That's not the best word for it, but it's like, I'm like, ah, um, but I know well, it's, it's very it's complicated. Frustrating. It's frustrating and it's complicated. And especially like, you know, um, I've, I've worked with a lot of non-native filmmakers. I'm working with a non-native filmmaker right now who wants to make a film set up on the Blackfeet reservation. And to me, it's more about the intersection about, you know, the issues that I want to talk about in the film and how and why I want to support that. He's also non-white. So I feel like there's the, there's that, that I also want to support people from marginalized communities. But yeah, I don't know. I just like, I get so irritated that red face is still happening. Like that there are these actors who keep getting cast as native people, like right now, you know, like in Yellowstone, in Fargo, there's like one actress in particular. I mean, she's not native. She's half Asian or something. Like stop taking those roles. Like just stop. You can get a job doing something else. <laughs> Give it up to a native person. Like it's not, you know, it's just not acceptable. It can definitely feel very disheartening for sure. <laughs> and like being in the position that I'm in, it's just like weird because I'm like, I want to support native stories, but I'm like, ah, I, I want to support real native stories. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or expand upon that we talked about? Well, I'm kind of thinking back on your question about you know, the emotion, the emotion of the film. I mean, I don't think I would have been able to make the film the way that I did without having some sympathy, you know, for my characters and, um, and then having that be conveyed uh, through the film. I, I mean, emotion is really powerful. And if you can get, you know, if you can get somebody to connect to something through emotion, I mean, wow, like you've done your job as a filmmaker, in my opinion all the art, all of the aesthetics, all of the technical, you know, geekery. I mean, it doesn't really matter unless like you're connecting with the viewer. Yeah. I think you did a great job of doing that. And like, I felt super drawn into the film because of that. And it just kind of was like, oh, I can relate to this, even though it's not my story really almost at all, but I connected it with it emotionally for sure. And I can't just take credit for it just myself. I mean, you know, I had an amazing editor, Kristen Swanbeck, who did an amazing job. I had amazing friends, you know, um, filmmaker friends who gave us really invaluable feedback on how to make the movie like as good as we could make it. Um, so, you know, back to that thing about things aren't made in a vacuum. It's not, it wasn't just me, you know, it was, it was a whole team of people. Yeah. I appreciate you acknowledging that because it is, you know, like none of this stuff that we do, you know, even this podcast video, like I can't do it by myself. We need all that help and all those other perspectives and insights. And I value people who are really good at what they do <laughs> and like trust them to do a better job than me or value their opinion. That's the secret sauce right there, Don. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, the last thing is just, uh, obviously, we want people to watch the film. So where can they follow it, upcoming screenings or rent the film, yeah. all that good stuff? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, you can uh, follow us. We do have a Facebook page, Facebook slash daughter of a lost bird. And then we also have an Instagram at daughter of a lost bird doc. All important is our website, www.daughteroflostbird.com. And we are putting up our screenings as they happen. Um, right now, the film is going to be announced at a couple of big festivals this fall so there'll be a few more festivals that we can add to our lineup so please be on the lookout for that and also look out for an announcement for our broadcast coming up soon and i can put all this information too in the show notes so if you guys want to follow on instagram facebook website all that you can just go there and click make it nice and easy for you I also want to mention that um, if you're interested in having a screening of the film at your whatever it is, some sort of educational dorky moment um, or a community moment or, you know, whatever it is, our semi-theatrical distributor is Women Make Movies and they'll have the film up on their website pretty soon too. Awesome. That's all I have. (laughs) This has been lovely. Dog barks cat meows and all airplanes airplanes loud trucks it's montana in a nutshell (laughs) thank you for listening to this week's episode of faux real the music is lost and bound by talene cully the artwork is by whitney silgato and i'm your host dawn borchardt as always if you could please subscribe rate and review the podcast and follow us on instagram at faux real pod I also am getting a shipment of these super cute stickers this week, so I would love to figure out a way to get those in your hands, so stay tuned on the Instagram while I sort that out.